This podcast is brought to you by the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Well, the belief is that when you hear about two companies coming together in an M&A deal, that it will be a winner, be a winner across the board. But that is not always the case. In fact, a Harvard Business Review study back in 2011 said that actually the failure rate of M&A deals was around 70 to 90 percent. But other data have put it close to being more of a 50-50 proposition. So why is it that maybe these deals are not always successful? Emily Feldman is a management professor here at the Wharton School and joins us with more. Hi, Emily. Great to talk to you again. Hi, Dan. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I, I find it interesting when kind of reading the background on a lot of this, that obviously that, that in many cases the failure rates are maybe higher than we would think. Why do you think that is? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's a question that's been of interest for uh, many, many years, decades, in fact. So I think that it's important to distinguish two phases of the M&A process. Uh, the first is uh, kind of target selection and decision-making uh, in, in the first place, and then the second is implementation and execution. So I think that uh, there, the, the high failure rate that accompanies mergers and acquisitions can really be linked to, to both of these phases, and I can explain why. So on the target selection side, a lot of times companies will make poor decisions in terms of uh, which targets are the right fit, uh, poor, poor execution of a due diligence process, um, overestimation of synergies, overpayment, uh, especially when synergies are overestimated. So all of that has to do with kind of what you're choosing and, and how you're thinking about the deal in the first place. And then to kind of compound those problems, we have post-merger integration where you see challenges of culture clash, uh, bringing together the two organizations, uh, making them work together, uh, talent retention, leadership teams and how they might meld, and, and so on and so forth. So I really think it's important to kind of break this down into its component pieces because each of them really contributes in a unique way to uh, the, the lack of success that sometimes accompanies mergers and acquisitions. So let me talk about a couple of those elements that, that you just laid out there. And, and you, the, the word synergies is always in play when you're talking about a deal uh, in the M&A framework to begin with. Uh, how much expectation should there be from companies that you're going to have a level of that? And maybe to what level you know, should a company expect to have synergies and crossovers that maybe you need to work through as, as the deal moves forward? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. And to answer it, I'm going to distinguish between uh, cost synergies and revenue synergies. So when we think about cost synergies, we're talking about efficiencies that you can gain from consolidation, uh, eliminating redundancies, perhaps layoffs, right? So there's that, that aspect of synergies. But then there's also revenue synergies, which is uh, you know, entering new markets, uh, gaining new customers, um, building new service lines together with the target company, right? So um, gains that really relate to increasing the top line as opposed to reducing costs. And so when we think about expectations, the problem really lies in terms of the revenue synergies, much more so than the cost synergies. So there was a study that concluded that on average, the realization rate of cost synergies was somewhere between 60 and 90%. 
But then if we look at the realization rate for revenue synergies, it was actually more on the order of 15 to 30%. So you can see exactly where the problem lies here, right? It's much more straightforward to uh, realize cost synergies. It's much more straightforward to gain efficiencies, to consolidate, to unfortunately to fire people. Um, and so companies tend to be much more successful when they try to pursue rev- uh, cost synergies in their mergers and acquisitions. But revenue synergies are a whole different ball of wax in the sense that you have to get people to work together. You have to learn about uh, geographies or markets or sets of customers that you might not have had exposure to. And so the workload and the challenges associated with realizing revenue synergies tend to be much more significant. So it's the over-expectation on revenue synergies that's much more problematic than it is for cost synergies when we think about mergers and acquisitions. And so on that side of it, when you think about something like a, a an M&A deal in the retail sector, uh, that may lead to, you know, having to, to shut down locations because you're, you're to a degree, you're doubling up on uh, on resources in a particular marketplace. That, that's just one example of it, correct? Absolutely, yeah. So you have two stores uh, that were previously independent. They're kind of close to one another and you shut one down. And, you know, that's that's much more straightforward than saying, oh, hey, I'm a um, I'm a chocolate company and I want to enter the gum market. Right. I'm making something up here. Right. But sort of saying like, well, you know, what differences does gum have? Right. Are consumer buying patterns different? Right. Do we have to think about relationships with stores differently? You know, so all of those uh, tend to be much more uh, taxing when we think about that decision-making process than just saying, oh, hey, I'm going to shut down one of these two stores. You mentioned due diligence as well. And and, and when you said that, I, I was like, I can't imagine a scenario where, and it may happen, where there's any feasibility that not doing your due diligence in a in a deal framework uh, is acceptable. I, I, you know, I would think that, you know, that has got to be, if it's not, line item number one it's 1a in terms of leaders and corporations thinking about a deal and how it will move uh, move forward is truly understanding you know all that is part of a potential deal yeah i agree with you completely and i i actually would point to sort of two aspects of due diligence that are that are challenging for companies so it's not so much that they don't do due diligence right as you say of course companies do uh, due diligence when they um, when they uh, when they do their their mergers and acquisitions, right? But I think the problems are, are twofold. Like I said, so one problem is that a lot of times companies have in mind the answer that they want to receive, that it's a good target, that it fits well with their organization, and so yes, they conduct due diligence, but they you know maybe kind of make the make the process. Uh, lead to the answer that they seek to achieve in the first place, right? So almost like a backward-looking type of of process, right? So I think that that's one challenge that we tend to see with due diligence. The other challenge that we tend to see, and this will relate to what I had started talking about in terms of post-merger integration, is that companies oftentimes don't plan ahead. So, yes, they kick the tires. They think about whether what the target company is saying about its financials and its operations are true. Absolutely. But they never stop to think about or they don't stop to think about, um, well, how are we going to integrate this? Is it a good fit for us from a cultural perspective? Is the leadership team going to work with our leadership team? Are we going to be able to retain the talent in this organization? And if so, how? 
And so, you know, yes, even though they do that due diligence in terms of, you know, sort of the kicking the tires aspect, they never think forward about, um, you know, where are we going with this and how are we actually going to execute that deal? And so when it comes time to actually execute that deal, they start to encounter many problems that they didn't even think about in the first place. So I think that that's the second challenge with due diligence that I would point to. Talk about the element of culture clash and, and how that can, can, can play out in the framework of a, of a deal coming together. Yeah, great question. So here, I think that there's a huge misconception that I'd like to just debunk right off the right off the bat, right? So I think that very often when you say the word culture or the words culture clash in the context of mergers and acquisitions, companies or people will say, oh, well, we both wear jeans to work and have beer at the end of the day on Friday. And they say, oh, our cultures are the same. Therefore, things are going to be fine when we do mergers and acquisitions. And I just think that that's a completely misplaced view of of culture, right? So for me, when I think about culture, especially in the context of mergers and acquisitions, I would point much more to the notion of how do we do things, right? What are our processes uh, for getting things done within our organization? And are those compatible with uh, what the target has in place in terms of its own processes, its own ways of doing things? So let me give an example, right? Think about um, an organization that has a a company that has a very vertical um, hierarchy in terms of the reporting structure. So you have a boss and they have a boss and the boss's boss has a boss and so on and so forth. So you can't get anything done within that structure unless you kind of follow the the way that reporting has to work. Now contrast that to uh, a very flat organization where, you know, there's not much hierarchy, if any, and, you know, decisions are kind of made in a, in a faster way, that there's more collaboration, just sort of a flatter organization structure. So, yes, both of those companies might drink beer after work on Friday and wear jeans, but, you know, in terms of how stuff gets done, in terms of how decisions are made, you might imagine having a ton of clashes because one company is just used to working in a very different fashion uh, than the other. And so there's tons of other ways that this can manifest itself. Think about compensation. Think about uh, capital allocation processes, um, you know, so on and so forth. So I think that uh, it, it can be really um, uh, deceptive, right, when companies say, oh, culture, you know, similar uh, similar attitudes or something like that. It's actually much deeper and has more to do with sort of the operating processes, the day-to-day, how do we do things within companies. You also mentioned the issue of talent retention and how much of a concern is that when there is a, a deal kind of in the works? Uh, it's a huge concern, and I'll tie this back to my discussion of revenue synergies earlier, right? So um, think about what's happening if you're trying to accomplish revenue synergies, right? Entering a new, a, new, a new product market or a new geography that the target previously had access to and you as the acquirer didn't. So you really need the talent from the target companies uh, in order to be able to uh, execute on that strategy effectively, So if you don't retain the talent, you're not going to accomplish the strategy. And so this is where uh, companies often find themselves in a good deal of trouble after they do uh, mergers and acquisitions. And this also relates to the how we do things aspect. So if you need the talent, but you don't put things in place, put steps in place to actually retain the talent, uh, or if even worse, uh, everyone just kind of walks out the door because they can't function in, uh, you know, the different organizational environment that the acquirer has, you're really going to be in a lot of trouble when it comes to that talent retention perspective. 
And so the numbers are not particularly good when we look at um, these kinds of figures around talent retention. It's actually uh, an area that companies tend to do very poorly with uh, when they complete mergers and acquisitions. I would imagine then when, when you're talking about certain companies, especially when you're talking about publicly traded companies, you also potentially... Uh, have to factor in the regulatory side uh, as an impact of, of not only getting the deal done, but how it may play out down the road as well. Absolutely. And, you know, we're in a much more uh, rigorous antitrust environment right now. So it's a very big consideration for uh, companies to be mindful of. And, you know, yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, so if you think about what might uh, what might happen from a regulatory standpoint, you know, let's let's run down a few of them, right? So is the deal going to get blocked in the first place, right? It, yeah. Are the regulators even going to allow this to go through? That's kind of a first-order question. Second-order question might be, okay, so if they do allow the deal to go through, are there going to be conditions that are associated with it? Are we going to have to, uh, you know, divest or get rid of certain businesses in order to uh, permit the merger to go, go through in the first place? So that implies a whole uh, other set of transactions that might need to accompany uh, the, the M&A deal that you might not have even thought about in the first place, right? So I think that you're right to point to regulation as uh, an antitrust as kind of a key consideration when we think about, you know, sort of the competitive landscape right now and tightening enforcement and, and how that impacts M&A making. And then especially if it's two publicly traded companies, usually what we see is there is a a, a downside impact uh, on the stock price uh, of usually the acquiring company uh, for a period of time. Yes, definitely. And that's um, a finding that's actually been established pretty consistently over time that on average, we tend to see, um, you know, a very uh, a, a small negative impact on the uh, acquiring company stock price, at least in the short term following the announcement of that deal. Uh, and I would argue that that reflects kind of the target selection part of the story. If we look at kind of longer term performance, the ones, the deals where acquirers kind of continue to underperform are those where, you know, some of the execution challenges, the implementation challenges that I was t- was talking about start to become more apparent as well. So, you know, there's an interesting link between kind of the phases of the M&A deal that I was describing and how it relates to um, performance of the acquiring company in both the short term and the longer term. What's your belief then on, on how we are kind of framed at, at the moment in terms of M&A deals with the impacts that obviously we're seeing with the, the state of the economy? And obviously each deal is different depending on on the components, but is there even a little bit of hesitation right now because of what we've seen with the economy and the rise of rates and the Fed's path of higher for longer that those are all factors that obviously a lot of these companies are are factoring into a degree to a degree yes totally i agree with that and yeah i mean the the financial environment is completely different than it was let's say two years ago Uh, you know as you say uh interest rates are obviously much higher so that makes financing much more expensive you know stock prices uh you know are, are more muted than they had been right so that makes equity less attractive as uh, a vehicle for for funding M&A deal M&A deals in terms of stock uh, stock based deals and then you know to top it all off companies have a lot less cash on their books now uh, on average than they did let's say uh, you know sort of on, on the tail end of the pandemic right where there were sort of huge cash balances that been, had been built up because companies weren't really doing all that much during the pandemic 
so all three avenues of financing are much tighter right now, which which I agree with you is kind of putting a damper on uh, on M and A activity, and we've we've certainly seen that in the numbers uh, this year so far. You know, the thing I worry about a bit is that uh, a lot of times what will happen is that when companies face underperformance in in certain areas of their business, right, they will often turn to M and A as sort of a desperation move you know, under the argument that, well, if we buy this, it'll fix our problems and, and you know, miracles will happen and everyone will be happy. Um, but, you know, given the failure rates and the difficulties that we've been talking about in our call here, you know, you can sort of see how that expectation can often be misplaced and really lead yeah. to um, pretty significant challenges for companies. Emily, great to have you with us. Thanks very much for your time today. All the best. Thanks, Dan. Great to talk to you. You got it. Emily Feldman, who is a management professor uh, here at the Wharton School. To keep engaged with Wharton Business Daily and other Wharton School shows, visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.